to Public Work, a podcast where we dive into the world and work of public humanities. I'm Jim McGrath, and I am one of the co-hosts and co-producers of Public Work. And I'm with... Amelia Volcheski, the other half of the dynamic duo behind Public Work. Welcome to our second episode. Yes, and uh, so we are recording this on the day that the first episode went live, uh, only an hour or so ago. So if there are controversies or scandals or... Um, the backlash has already set in, um, or it sets in between now and when this uh, makes the air. We are not ignoring the backlash. We just don't know about it, and um, we hope you understand that. Um, so if you have angry feelings, we will address those in episode three, uh, apparently. And if you're hearing episode two, it means they haven't cut us yet. So hooray! Yes, our bosses are, are happy enough to, to let us go through <laughs> with uh, episode two. So, um, uh, just a reminder, Public Work is an interview-style podcast where students from the master's program in public humanities at the John Nicholas Brown Center for Public Humanities and Cultural Heritage here at Brown University in sunny, I think sunny Providence, Rhode Island, um, are interviewing practitioners uh, in the field that um, inspire them, influence their work. Um, they're people that they're curious about how they got into this uh, business, so we hope that the questions they ask are um, questions that some of our listeners might be curious about uh, in relation to, to the various jobs and occupations that we're here for. Um, so who are we hearing from today? Today we're hearing from Maddie Mott, who's a first-year public humanities student. And she interviewed Cinnamon Catlin Legutko from the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine. And Cinnamon is the president and CEO of this small museum. And Maddie is really interested in small museums. She worked at one in Oregon before coming out east for grad school. Um, small museums, they are so cool. Is there a small museum you've been to recently that's kind of neat? Jim? I think, yeah, I, when when we were talking about small museums, one, it's, I don't know if it's technically a museum, um, it is a center by name, um, but I was in Tulsa a few months ago and I went to the Woody Guthrie Center, um, which is a really cool uh, space, and they had a small um, exhibition space that had uh, a cool exhibit about the Dust Bowl, which I don't know much about being from uh, Boston currently and Brooklyn previously, um, but they also had this really interesting Chris Christofferson uh, exhibit and um, one of my favorite bits well my two favorite bits in the, this exhibit space was they had a digital jukebox um, that let you uh, play various hits from uh, the Christofferson catalog um, you could play some Highwaymen and uh, that's about all I know I don't really uh, Amelia forever yeah, Amelia, <laughs> might, Jennings. yeah Amelia might know more about that than me and then they also um, my favorite item in the small museum uh, small exhibit space was uh Chris Christopherson's action figure uh, from the Blade series of movies. Uh, he was the character Whistler, and the uh, the label on the action figure uh, explicitly specified that this was from the personal collection of Chris Christopherson. Um, so that was my long-winded um, discussion of a not quite small museum, but a small exhibit space that I thought was pretty cool. Um, so what about you? What's your favorite recent small museum or favorite of all time oh um a few months ago i was home in virginia and i visited the moton museum which is in uh, farmville or prince edward county and it's all about school desegregation because after brown v board prince edward county shut down schools as opposed to integrating them and so it was a really powerful experience and they had the tar paper schools that students went to school in 
Um, I wept. It was a great museum. If you're ever in Farmville, Virginia, you gotta go. Yeah, and we'll put we'll put some info in the notes uh, for this episode to, to let people know um, some of these uh, small spaces. Because yeah, a lot the the larger museums and, and exhibitions and exhi- exhibit spaces get a lot of attention. So I think that's one of the the great things about hearing Maddie um, think about her past experiences and then also talking with Cinnamon about what's going on in Bar Harbor. Um, and then also uh, discussed in this is the topic of decolonizing museums, which is something that's very relevant to national conversations uh, in the field. Um, I know for me, uh, when I hear people talking a lot about the decolonizing museum spaces or libraries or archives, um, it's it really sort of helps you think about the different perspectives, the different voices in these spaces. And when you are in museums, large or small, um, you know, having that lens in mind about like, what would this look like if it was decolonized? What does it mean to decolonize a space? I think is, um, it's just a really generative, positive and, and necessary experience in these spaces. Yeah, and it's a conversation we're having a lot here at Brown um, because decolonizing museums really is all about power dynamics and hierarchy. And, you know, these are really relevant topics right now. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's great to hear Cinnamon and Maddie like talking very specifically about what this, um, it, you know, might look like or, or how this might be applied to a really specific um, context, too. I think the wider implications should be clear there, um, but also the detail um, in there, I think, was, is particularly useful. So this concludes our introductory uh, banter slash, um, you know, uh, what would you call this? Not quite banter. Intro. Intro. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, our intro. Hogging, hogging valuable uh, airtime. Airtime. Um, um, inserting ourselves. But enjoy the interview and be sure to follow us on Twitter at publicworkpod and let us know what you're thinking. Yep. And you can also email us at publicworkpodcast at gmail.com if you are not a fan of Twitter. And I understand if you're not a fan of Twitter. Um, or if you are just curious about, you know, what we're doing here. Um, what stuff's coming up. We've got a lot of interesting stuff uh, in the pipeline. And remember to check back with us twice a month. Um, We are rolling out new episodes every other Wednesday. So thanks and enjoy this interview. Awesome. So uh, first off, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed. I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited to chat with you. Yes, I'm very honored to be asked. First thing, do you want to just introduce yourself and we can start working through some other questions? That's fine, yes. Happy to introduce myself, Cinnamon Captain Legutko, President and CEO of the Abbey Museum here in Bar Harbor, Maine. Um, we are a museum with a mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki Nations with every visit. We consider ourselves a history museum documenting and representing over 12,000 years of Native history in this place. Okay. Um, I've been here nine years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, well, I should say nine in June. Yes. Awesome. Cool. So as the president and CEO of the Abbey Museum, can you talk about what are some of your favorite aspects of your job and what do you do at your job? Well, an average day is never um, average. It's very different every day. <laughs> um, we're a smaller museum, so there's a lot of activity and um, a great deal of cross-disciplinary work. So, for example, today I would be astonished at what I've been doing. I've gone from 
doing financial management to an education team meeting, plotting out the entire year coming up. Mm-hmm. From that to um, I just had a call with the head of the Maine Arts Commission, checking in about some grants and some activities we have coming up, and they're wanting to collaborate. Um, so there's all that external work popping up when there's internal work, which takes two different brains, I'm convinced. So a lot of switches <laughs> back and forth. Um, and no two days are the same. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. But overall, I think you would say could say that my job is focused on strategic um, development, strategic planning, um, creating a vision and executing it. Working very closely with the board of trustees, Wabanaki advisors, and collaborators to do that, and to also create ways for staff to engage in that vision and to make it happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's the financial administrative part that I have to focus on, as well as the fundraising role. I have a great deal of fundraising responsibility with major donors um, Mm -hmm. and packaging proposals for them to consider is a big part of my time around that. Um, That's what the job is supposed to be, (laughs) as well as a lot of external work, talking with... um, collaborators, partners in the community, and um, making talks, presentations, and thinking of ways for people to work together. So I do a lot of that as well. Yeah. What would you say is the most rewarding part of what you do? Um, I think the most rewarding part is when we have the space to innovate, when we can think about doing this work in new and different ways that is meaningful to our constituents. I really think... Mm-hmm. Um, being closed off to that is is not appropriate in the 21st century, but it's personally very stifling. I love having the freedom to think and collaborate and think about the complexities of that work and not be hard and fast about what used to happen or what should mm-hmm. happen. Just being in that um, creative space is exciting for me. It's my natural place. Yes. That's why I'm in this job, because um, I have that ability to see where it can go, and um, I feel like that's the most fun um, interestingly enough, though, and I would have never imagined this as a kid in high school struggling with math, but I really enjoy <laughs> looking at um, financial trending and, and where that's going, too. So, like, there's the there's the um, detail part of it that's enjoyable for me as well as the big picture thinking. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is most challenging about your work? Well, a lot of it has to do with where we're located. I think mm-hmm. if this job was planted somewhere else, it would be very different. So we're on an island off the coast of Maine. We are connected by a bridge, but um, it's remote for a lot of people in a rural yeah. state. This is a very rural state, and it's very difficult to hire people and to yeah. get talented people interested in making the move out here is a challenge. It's mm-hmm. quite a value proposition we have to give them. And I experienced it moving here myself. It's it's tough. So trying to assemble a team that's the best and the brightest to do the good work is um shockingly hard we've managed to do it but Mm -hmm. i can't believe how much time we have to spend on doing it Uh, (laughs) so that's that's been a surprise about team development um and at the same time too i would say that for all those same reasons it still is tough fundraising climate um Mm -hmm. there's pockets of that everywhere but um the rural nature of maine and the seasonal nature of maine so while there are people of great capacity to give here, they're only here in the summer and they're mm-hmm. in their home communities the rest of the time, which is their 
their primary um, support. Um, so that is a, a careful dance that we have to do. Yeah. Having said that, we have some great donors and we love them and value them, but we give them extra love because we know how hard it was to get them. That's <laughs> <laughs> So um, since I am a grad student and a lot of my fellow students are interested in museum administration, is there anything that you would want students to know who are interested in this line of work? Any tips or tricks you would offer up? Absolutely. <laughs> if you really want to get into leadership or administration, you have to get some fundraising experience under your belt. Um, you have to enter that um, happily. It's part of the job. Um, mm-hmm. It's It should be everybody's job, in fact, at a museum. But if you're in leadership, you really have to be comfortable in the fundraising world and know the ins and outs. And none of that I learned in grad school. It yeah. was all through a mentorship um, with a performing arts director of development who really took me under her wing, and I watched what she did, and we talked a lot about it. And then I followed up with some um, independent, you know, continuing education focused on that. The other part, too, was the finance. I didn't take any kind of financial classes when I was an undergrad or grad school. I didn't have Mm -hmm. to. It never occurred to me that I might need to do that. Even though I'm not the CFO um, or director of finance, I have to be able to communicate those numbers to the board. It's on me. I have to have the bottom line well understood. So I almost have to be in the process or at least understand it as much as a as an accountant does. And that, that's that been something I've had to learn on my own. Um, and I've done both of those not only through mentoring and learning from colleagues, but I've also volunteered in capacities that would let mm-hmm. me learn it, and that's made a huge difference. Cool. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the educational and professional pathways you took to sure. get where you are now? Sure. So I did my undergraduate work at um, Purdue University in uh, Indiana, and I knew I was planning on a museum career, so I double majored um, Mm -hmm. in anthropology and art history and minored in history, so I was hedging all my bets. Pardon? Yes. <laughs> I was thinking apparently about general museums when I was doing that. Uh-huh. So then for grad school, I focused um, in anthropology with a specialization in museum studies and was at the University of Arkansas for that. Um, mm-hmm. And I also focused my anthropological lens through cultural North American um, communities. And from there, I was ready for the workforce and mm-hmm. had a tough time. Couldn't quite land the job I was looking for and also chose to move away mm-hmm. from where I was in grad school. So I had to kind of rebuild networks. So there's about three years of rebuilding networks, three or four years, trying to get the gig. But I stayed in museums somehow. I was in another working in another industry, but I was volunteering in museums at the same time. So that was really important to me to keep a foot in there. Um, and I ended up working um and administration at a hospital. So I learned okay. a lot about leadership through that. Um, I worked for the associate director of a hospital and then ended up working in technology in a hospital, nice. which was just fascinating. But it completely applies to everything I do now. I could observe all of these functions and how they work and think about what they might look like for a museum setting. So I kept at it, even though I wasn't in the industry. And then uh, my first... Um, real full-time museum gig was the Miami County Museum in Peru, Indiana. It's a county museum up north. And um, I did that work as the director. And then I left there and started some consulting and picked up a job at a museum in western Indiana, kind of northern still, um, the general 
Lou Wallace City and Museum. And when I started there, it was part-time seasonal, so I was consulting the rest of the week with other museums, helping with Mm -hmm. um, their collections care goals. My focus in museum studies had been around collections management. So I was helping them, um, like volunteer organizations, set up collections, storage models, and um, I was also helping some nonprofits with archives who didn't have a way to set that up. So I set them up for them and made them well-organized and accessible. And um, that went really well, but I wanted that museum um, full-time experience still. Mm-hmm. So we grew the museum I was working for into a full-time year-round type organization. We went from, I think it was two of us part-time seasonal to four um staff people when I left to full-time to part-time um, stable budget and um, well-defined historic preservation goals that can be executed, all kinds of good stuff. And before I left, um, which was, I started here in 2009, so in 2008, we won the National Medal for Museum Service. Awesome. So that was exciting. Yeah. Was a really big high watermark and positioned me for this next job. Um, so then I moved here. There was a national search, and they found me um, in great part because of that award, mm-hmm. finding me in the uh, cornfields of Indiana and brought me <laughs> out here to Maine, and it worked out. <laughs> so, and the other thing I'll say that I started doing at um, the Lou Wallace um, job was I started volunteering for the field. Um, I started the oh. Small Museums Committee for ASLH. That was mm-hmm. an amazingly important step. I just knew I had to do it. And so I worked extra and did all I could to really make a mark for that committee. I had also started volunteering um, for AAM as um, a member of the Small Museum Administrators Committee, their um, professional network. And that was huge. Started showing up at um, receptions, talking to people, how can I get involved, what can I do, and then really walking the walk and talking the talk and volunteering. And that Mm -hmm. has led to... So many more opportunities. I then went on the ASLH Council as treasurer, so that gave me some of those financial opportunities. And then now I'm on the AAM board as their treasurer. Um, so that's been very careful part of my career path, making mm-hmm. room for that as well as the job. Yeah. So one of the things I'm interested in, you talking about all the volunteering experience and, and mentoring experience as well, uh, or being mentored yourself, for grad students who are kind of entering a precarious job market, what would you would you recommend uh, taking advantage of all the volunteering, even though there's oftentimes precarious labor practices that accompany that as well? <clears throat> Absolutely, yes. I mean, it's it's a matter of what your situation is mm-hmm. and how much time. I mean. I understand that not everybody can do it, and I was working full-time and volunteering, and I yeah. had a different situation, of course. Um, and I had a husband at the time, and I still do, who's really helped support me in that. And I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, but I think it's the case for anything you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. If you can have more involvement in what you're passionate about, why wouldn't you do it? So find ways that fit the mold. The smallest of volunteer opportunities are great. But on top of that, you have to show up and network. Networking mm-hmm. is so critical. If you can get um, scholarships to go to conferences, do it. I did it in grad school. I even, 
I was going to be an archaeologist for a brief period of time, so I shouldn't even say this, but I will. I wrote a paper so I could go to a conference that my grant program would pay for. I didn't care. I just wanted to write the thing. And then I turned it into an article later that made sense, and it all worked out. But I got out there and really networked and and, and put my personality forward and made it happen. So you have to commit to it. It's not going to just land in your lap. Yeah, um, absolutely. Even if you have the littlest of resources, you still have to to meet people to mm-hmm. really um, build the possibilities. I think. Awesome. And awesome. I should also say, I didn't um, I didn't completely finish your question about continuing education. And so all along the way, I'd say I've continued to engage in professional development, and that's a great thing because you meet people and peers and colleagues. Um, like I went to the Seminar for Historical Administration in 2004. So I have this wonderful cohort of colleagues that look out for me, and I look out for them. Um, I've done nonprofit leadership training, same deal there. Um, mm. Most recently, I've joined a leadership roundtable for, with museum directors, and so we have a cohort that looks out for each other, and we meet three times a year. So I've continued this shared learning commitment mm-hmm. to keep it fresh and sharp and I can't assume that I understand what's going on in the field so I have to engage in it. Right. Awesome. So I'm really excited to talk about this next topic and you started to talk about it uh, but the Small Museums Committee and the Small Museum Toolkit as someone who background is in working with small museums I'm really excited to chat with you uh, about this. But do you want to talk about the Small Museum Committee and AASLH and that work with the Small Museums Administrative Committee at AAM as well? Sure. Um, so when I got involved with ASLH's committee, it was the first of its kind, but the AAM committee had been around for a while and um, was at, let's see, that would have been 2003, 2004, about that time mm-hmm. period. And it was this interesting juncture in the museum field where small museum administrators, workers, had had enough with um, the um, lack of interest or support for small museums, not mm-hmm. to mention the lack of respect. Yes, I'll just yes. Say it. There wasn't <laughs> a lot of respect. And they make up the vast majority of all museums. Mm-hmm. And um, there are brilliant people working in small museums. And I would argue it's a fabulous first job out of grad school because you get your hands on everything. Mm-hmm. You can try everything. Um, and it was completely overlooked. And so AAM's Small Museum Administrators Committee had started making a lot of presentations, had started advocating at the meetings to really have sessions led by small museum people for small museum people. Um, and I got right in the middle of that, and um, I think that was a turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, you see now, I mean, I think people would argue that it's not enough still, of course. There's never enough. But at these conferences, there is really an embedded presence of small museum administrators and leaders um, leading sessions and showing up and being part of the conversation. It's not these big museums saying, well, this is what we do, and you can scale it to what you do. It's not the same. Um, that practice at the small museum level is very different. And it's the most exciting because it's so engaged with community. It can't exist without your community. Mm-hmm. The board is working as volunteers, and they are your community. And you're gonna, and so often these museums are in small communities, so it's the place where people show up. It's where you see things happen. And um, I think it's one of the most interesting and exciting museum 
um, experiences that I've ever had. And that's why we wrote, we designed the Small Museum Toolkit. Um, Stacey Klingler and I, we were both working in small museums. We'd worked together in a small museum, and then she went to lead one. Um, we wanted to have a book written by and for small museum workers. And with with only a few exceptions, everybody who wrote was in the trenches. Mm-hmm. And that was not easy because that's the big rub is that um, you can't get away because there's so much work to be done. And sometimes if you're the only employee, there's nobody running the museum, so it's hard to get away and write or go to a conference. So um, I understand those limitations, but we wanted to make it that it was almost like the conference had come to them and it was sitting on their bookshelf. And mm-hmm. they could just pull down and, I'm working on this today and I'm not a collections person, but it's my responsibility. What do I need to do? And they could pull down that chapter and, and understand more. Um, so it was designed with that, with that mindset in place. Yeah. Were you initially drawn to small museum work out when you were fresh out of grad school or...? Um, well, I would say in grad school, the museums we worked in were all small, and I think that mm-hmm. influenced me. I mean, I was a, I was a kid who was raised by museum lovers, so I was lucky. I mean, our vacations were always around big museums. When we traveled, we'd go to see some, some big sites. But um, in grad school at the University of Arkansas, until um, until recently, there wasn't a big museum. Of course, Crystal Bridges is there now, but mm-hmm. that was not there when I was there. And it was small, little, cute county museums that still exist that do great professional work. So I saw the perfection of a small museum model and learned in it and wrote about it and did my projects around it. Then getting out of um, grad school, the um, lack of turnover in those positions is yeah. challenging, period. Nobody leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pay rate isn't great. So you, you do have to hold out um, until you can make one work. Or you negotiate that it's a part-time job and that you find another job to help the plant that pays more. It's it's not easy, but you can find them. I felt lucky that I did find them that while they paid modestly, I could I could make a difference and through fundraising and changing the budget structure, see myself get rewarded in the process. Mm-hmm. So uh, why do you think small museums are so important? And I think we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to talk about this more. Well, I think they're so important because they're very place-based. Mm-hmm. They're in the location often where things have happened. Um, they are much more accessible to community members, especially if you know they're not big travelers or they don't um, see the need to go to a big museum. They might be interested in what's just down the street. I always think of the first job I had, the Miami County Museum. It was right on the town square where you would do shopping and everything. You'd walk past this museum, um, and it was in an old department store that everybody loved. So it had this architectural structure to it that was beloved and had Mm. been turned into a museum. So it felt like of the place, and I think most of our small museums are that way. They're in your identity of a hometown if it's something you regard highly, you think of those places. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's what makes them special. Um, and I also think the the way that um, staff and board can work together in those spaces is much more familiar. It can be problematic if you don't know mm-hmm. where to draw the line. <laughs> but it's I still 
um, get hung up on that when I think about my board here, as amazing as they are and as engaged as they are, they don't work in the same way as they used to work with me in my last two jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, The Abbey is technically a medium-sized museum based on its budget size, and so it's got a more um, structured – I don't know what the word is for how this board operates. I guess it's the more traditional way Mm -hmm. of larger organizations – you would never see them coming in and help me move a collection or help me install an exhibit or help me um, or write a fundraising letter for me because I don't have time, right? That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I kind of miss that a little bit <laughs> just because it gives you a lot of fresh eyes and um, helps you stay connected to the community you're serving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're definitely um, – I've worked at both a small history, historical society and a large science museum, and I think what's really valuable about small museums is it's so much more collaborative just in the structure. Yeah, yeah. Because I think – and once you get larger and larger, everyone gets so separated, but because there's so few of you and you're wearing so many hats, um, that collaboration and that more informal, scrappy structure, while difficult to work in in some ways – is uh, really great if you're trying to be innovative and and do something different. Right. And then the one other thing I would add, and I discovered this at my um, second job, was that because I would be in between writing a grant and giving tours. So I was doing frontline educational, (laughs) (laughs) right? I'm leading tours, and you're getting instant results. You're mm-hmm. realizing, oh, that message that did not land well. They don't get what I'm talking about, or or they really like that, and it can it can shape what you use then later for fundraising or what you use mm-hmm. later in interpretive panels. It's that real time uh, feedback and correction that is incredibly valuable, and that does not come easily. Yeah, yeah. So I like that you were talking about how most of these small museum committees were designed to give a voice and make more visible the work of small museum professionals. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious if you have any more tips on how we can do this more. Because I'm, I'm from Oregon, and so uh, heritage and history and cultural organizations in Oregon aren't, I would say, living having living on both coasts now, aren't as valued as much on the East Coast. And I think mm-hmm. my coworkers and I felt uh, invisible in the larger scheme of things as a tiny historical society. So do you have any tips on how we can continue to advocate for small museum professionals and small museums mm-hmm. in general and how we can make our Well, visible? I mean, definitely something I should shout out is the Small Museum um, Association. Mm-hmm. They're amazing. And I've gone to that conference a couple times. Um, the work that they do is, is so fun, and it's all volunteer-driven. And they when you attend that conference, you realize how special small museums are and it doesn't really matter what anybody thinks. <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's the place to be. Um, and then the other thing are the state-level museum associations. I was really involved early in my career with the Indiana um, Association of Indiana Museums, and I could really get involved and served as president and could then advocate to other museums. Like you could um, have the strength of all these museums make a case to the larger mm-hmm. museum leadership. Um but you know how do you how do you get them to see you on par? It's tough. It really is, and it's elitism, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, larger museums have obstacles too. Like they can't send everybody to conferences. They can't have all the money they always need for all the projects they're doing. They're strapped as well. But for some reason, um, they don't see that 
similarity in smaller institutions. I totally get that. Um, mm-hmm. I my I, I can't be bothered with somebody looking down on me. It's just not going to be acceptable <laughs> personally. It's no. So I become the best that I can be and outshine. And so when we won the medal for national service, um, national museum, national medal for museum service, rather. We were probably the smallest museum to win it at that point, and only the second in Indiana to win it. Win it. Wow. The first had been the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, which is like a world-class museum. So it was yes. us and them for a while. Uh-huh. So that was just through pure excellence, and then you get noticed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I just, I just really, and you know, letting people know what you're doing, showing up, presenting, leading in communities, engaging. You'll be the envy of everyone. <laughs> I'm really excited that uh, I'm actually presenting at the Small Museum Association Conference uh, in February. Oh, I'm excited. It's my first conference. I'm excited that uh, you have such oh. uh, high regards for it. Oh, you'll have so much fun and do everything you can. Don't stay okay. in your hotel room. <laughs> awesome. I can do that. Uh, so the other topic that I want to discuss with you is decolonization, especially at small museums. Um, and I wanted you to discuss your work at the Abbey Museum with, uh, in regards to decolonization. And I love, I remember you gave a talk at AM last year about decolonizing internal practices too. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I would love if you could talk about both of those sides of decolonizing. Sure. Um, <laughs> it's quite a long conversation, so steer me if I get it. Okay, a sounds good. Um, <laughs> but, it all started for us in 2012. We um, had our first convening of the newly formed Native Advisory Council, and um, it had been a new thing that I was tasked to really make happen when I was hired. And we constructed the council with um, representation from each tribal community in Maine. There are five. So tribal leadership appoints two from each. That makes ten. And we have our first convening, and all these great ideas and topics are coming out, and there's a big recommendation about what our governance should look like because we've struggled with that. You know, if we're working collaboratively, if this is our content, who should be on the board? How do Native people want to be on the board? Do they feel like they want to? What does it look like? So there's this great recommendation um, from the council that – tribal leadership should appoint seats. So there'd be a seat from each community on the board. Great idea. We loved it. We take it back to the Board of Trustees as a recommendation. They did not love it. (laughs) They Mm. lost their minds. And um, we had to stop our processes and figure out what was going on and realize that the board simply didn't understand that there's the possibility that Native people would have a problem with museums, that they didn't understand Mm. museum history. They didn't understand... They didn't even know what NAGPRA was. They didn't Whoa. know. Yeah. And a layperson doesn't know. Yeah, that's but true. But they just hadn't been engaged in it. This had been an organization and a lot of financial challenge before I got here and had opened a new facility and some of the plans didn't go well. So they'd had a lot of distraction, probably not the most thoughtful building of a board. Um, so we committed to an intensive um, training um, retreat, board and staff, and really understand what sovereignty means. And mm-hmm. if we couldn't understand that, we couldn't understand anything else. And it was in that training and in the, the sessions afterwards that the word decolonization came together and that the board really wanted to change. They wanted it taken care of. But they committed to a very, very long process. And, of course, now we know it, it never ends. 
Um, so we've been five years into a decolonization initiative with a task force um, that started the process of learning and engaging the board in learning. Uh, I would describe my board as a learning board, and they have stayed in that process. They'll actually read articles and discuss them if you ask them to. Um, and now we're moving into a place of innovation where we've committed to the change. We have created a strategic plan that, that lays out a commitment to decolonizing museum practice at all levels. It's mm-hmm. not just in exhibitions or programs. It's decision-making and policy as well as um, um, advocacy work. And how do we how do we structure that organizationally? And our plan sets us on the course. And... Fast forward to where we are now, we are developing protocols for ensuring that this work and these changes last, but the big one we're working on is around governance. So we've returned to that original conversation and um, made a commitment to have um, tribal leaders appoint people to the board, but also added um, a commitment to board parity between Wabanaki and non-Wabanaki people by 2021. Mm-hmm. So as we were making those decisions and commitments, we were also meeting jointly um, within that year with the Native Advisory Council, and it's changed even more. <laughs> now Native Advisory Council wants to always meet with the board, which is exciting and mm-hmm. completely in new ground, and have put a pause on our board meetings while we restructure who we are to be a decolonizing museum. So all that is to say is that the learning is important and the engagement is important in the topics, but you have to commit to complete structural change, and that's what we're doing right now to be a decolonizing museum. Um, So what we've learned, though, is there there are not a lot of peers in this work. There Mm -hmm. are – academia has written about this forever. Um, Amy Lone Tree is someone we look to often, and we've brought her out here and we work with her. She has helped – through her writings, um, helped us have a framework for collaborative practice and privileging indigenous voice and perspective is a second part of that, mm-hmm. um, as well as truth-telling. That's the third part of decolonizing work. So it's through her writings that we've been able to create some practice. But there are just a few of us out there who are, who are doing this. Um, and some are small museums, some are big museums, mm-hmm. um, and some are tackling it just with exhibits. Um, a few others, though, are starting to look at bigger structures, like the San Diego Museum of Man is really overhauling its thinking and has been at this for a while um, and is working toward a name change and, and all kinds of restructurings re, re, um, to make a decolonizing museum happen out there. Um, so it's you know it's not a small museum problem it's not a big museum problem it's an it's an American museum problem mm-hmm. where we have settler colonialism here in the Americas and recognizing that the spoils of that colonialism is in museums and that it's harmful is is critical so with mm-hmm. that understanding change can happen and that to me is the biggest obstacle museums have mm-hmm. um, so we we write about this a lot. We um, present about this a lot, and in all of those processes and all of the excitement of the change, it was very clear that as a smaller entity, without an HR department, without a lot of internal administrative structures that larger museums might have, we're not tending to diversity, equity, accessibility, inclusion. We, mm-hmm. we we work around it, we think about it, we do things, but we're not formalized about it. We don't have a commitment laid down. And mm-hmm. we certainly haven't um, engaged personally in new learning around that. So um, as you referenced, it, 
AAM, the the talk I was part of has led to a successful grant award from IMLS to do that. So we're going to be doing this year cultural competency assessments um, and some trainings around anti-racism and servant leadership, which is something we've um, really looked at as a way to work in service with tribal communities and work in service for. Um, So we're looking at what the appropriate about that is. Um, and then also we're bringing in um, someone, a consultant, to audit our systems and assess and what are you doing and what can we do better and what kind of commitments do we need to make so that our internal practices match our external and mm-hmm. we're not out of sync. Um, so that's that's where our focus is right now is on the internal as well as figuring out our governance structure. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, you know, um and thinking about this in a small museum context is interesting too, because we did some work um, when we re- we uh, redid our whole exhibit uh, in collaboration with one of our local tribes. But I think that the emphasis is always placed on the external practices, right? You have a more decolonized exhibit, you have more decolonized programs. Sometimes you have a more decolonized collection. But it's really awesome to see this being uh, this lens being turned inwards as well, and thinking about how the structures match as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, do you have any recommendations or kind of initial findings about internal decolonizing practices, specifically for more smaller museums? Hmm. Some initial findings. Let's see. Let's see. Well, you know, I wouldn't say that I have any results or or best practices for people to borrow. But I would say it can be challenging to find the resources and that um, there's a recent publication that's a good start. Um, Mass Action, I don't know if you've heard about it yet, but um, it's this exciting convening that's been convening over a couple of years now. And um, it was started by the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. And a couple of years ago they convened about 50 of us, to really develop a toolkit for um, engagement internally to make that change um, f- for inclusion and other practices. So they have published a um, toolkit and a readiness assessment. Mm-hmm. So if you Google mass, mass action and find the link with the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, you can find all of these resources. So this readiness assessment anyone can do. I don't care where you are. You can sit down and look at your organization and say, we're doing this, we're not doing this. And it will tip you off about which direction you might go into. Cool. Um, so that's exciting. And that hasn't existed for the museum field in a while, ever, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So it's very tangible, and it's written by the field. Um, oh, awesome. by people doing this work. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting. So um, I think that's the best finding I can give is that if you look hard enough, there are some amazing people doing good work in the field, and paying attention to them is really critical. Awesome. Cool. Well, those are uh, all of the kind of questions I had for you, the more formal ones, but um, thinking about that this is a podcast designed for students and thinking about it kind of like a career day, is there any other final advice you would have for students interested in museum work? Sure, let's see. Um, I cannot emphasize enough the um, need to connect with people, um, the mm-hmm. need to introduce yourself and say hello. And um, I'm really excited at conferences when grad students and undergrad students are there and they, they introduce themselves to me. Um, I always come home with a little stack of, of cards. I mean, 
even if you're a grad student, it's it's a good idea to have a business card and mm-hmm. introduce yourself that way. That has been tremendous. And um, using devices like or tools like LinkedIn to stay connected to the people you meet are incredibly important. I, you know, when I'm hiring people, I get we're hiring a director of collections and research right now, and as soon as that application comes in, I immediately go online and look mm-hmm. to see where they show up. So thinking about connecting to people not only personally but digitally how you do that i cannot stress that enough that that needs to be tended to on a weekly basis to just check it and see what you look like get a good headshot out there um and and all and flood social media if you can with really good pics of yourself so you're very identifiable it's, <laughs> it's important because um, there's so many people out there that want to work yeah. in museums and um it's hard to rise above and i totally get that um, where possible, try to volunteer. But if you, if it's just not something you can do, I would bet that if you found a job where you were engaging in some kind of business practice, administrative practices, support for administrative office, those skills are transferable and they're wonderful. And if you can get into the tech world, even better. Mm-hmm. Um, just be mindful of what you're learning and think about how it can apply elsewhere because it's all connected. Museums are essentially built like businesses. They're just nonprofits. So mm-hmm. if you can find opportunities that you can transfer later, all I'm all for it. And I never stopped applying, even when I didn't land the job like I thought I was miraculously going to. I never <laughs> stopped applying for jobs. Awesome. It was like three-plus years of it. So <laughs> you can't give up. You're dedicated. Yeah, if you want it, you got to get it. That's true. Well, Cinnamon, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me about a number of topics. Um, I think it was really awesome, and I can't wait for other people to hear your wisdom. Oh, well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, your work, I don't know, I very, uh, I very much admire all that you do. If I could start a fan club, I would. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. That's so sweet. Yeah. Well, the next time you're at a conference and I'm at a conference, come find me. Okay, I will. All right. Thanks for listening to Public Work. You can find us on Twitter at Public Work Pod or email us at publicworkpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.